Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome into the Bam Beat Podcast, brought to you by Wiggles Pickles. This is your host, Clint Lamb, sitting here once again with Brett Hudson. Brett, how are you doing this morning, brother? I'm, I'm not taking the online beating that Alabama's second string offensive line is, so I guess I'm doing pretty good. Man, uh, a lot of uh, – isn't that been weird to you? You know, I, the first time through, after the game was over, I hop on Twitter, the reaction from people was just not really what I was expecting. And I'll even go as far as to say, you know, people that I'm close to and that I know uh, just were not happy with the performance overall. You know, I, I even have people saying there's no way – uh, Alabama's winning a national championship this year with what I just saw. Um, you know, some pretty hot takes in there. And then I thought to myself, what well, that this is blowing me away. And then you hop on Twitter and you're seeing all these, you know, reactions to Bryce Young's performance and how, you know, terrible quote unquote he looked and, you know, the future doesn't look bright with him as the starting quarterback. And then I'm like, I, I'm just I'm so confused. And I go back and I watch the tape, and I'm, I'm still not seeing it. I understand that late in the game, you know, including the very last play, they scored a touchdown to close the 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 gap even more and make it resp- a lot more respectable being 38-19. to 19. But I just – I don't know, man. What was your thoughts on the game? So let's let's go ahead and launch into this. We're, we're doing a, a recap of the Missouri game and a preview of the Texas A&M game in, in this pod in the future – for the rest of the season, we'll dedicate individual pop podcasts to these two um, topics, but scheduling constraints, we had to scram it into, into one this week. The two complaints that I saw most most frequently were uh, complaints about the second string offensive line and complaints about tackling, particularly on Daniel Wright, who, who frankly earned the criticism a little bit. But the, the tackling overall um, gained some, some criticism. So... Let's start with the second string offensive line. Offensive line performance is about the group of five, the collective. It is not about the individuals making up the five. So it's entirely possible and frankly likely that Alabama has good players on that second string offensive line. Like we know they have in Chris Owens. We're pretty sure they have in Darian Dalcourt. And and there's probably some development from – a Tommy Brown or an Amari Kite or a Pierce Quick that could make them a viable option maybe later this year if they absolutely needed to be. The, the, the point I'm trying to make here is if your second string offensive line is performing well together, that probably means they practice together too often because you only gain that through continuity that you earn on the practice field. And if your second string offensive line has that kind of continuity, then you're probably practicing them too much. You need to be practicing your, your first string offensive line more. And, and with your second string offensive line, it's more about having competent players that you can pull from that to replace your first string guys with, with injuries or in, in this season uh, quarantining or, or a positive COVID test. And we think Alabama has that in Darian Dalcourt and, and Chris Owen. So we think they've got their bases covered. How the group of the second string offensive line performs isn't necessarily a, a, a big talking point for me in, in that regard because it's not about the collective's performance. It's about individuals in that unit and are they ready to step up to the first string if they're required. And, on tackling, yeah. well, on ta- uh, let, me, let me finish the tackling okay. point, then I'll, I'll let you react to both. On tackling, it's actually kind of a similar um, setup. If your tackling is good in week one, you probably tackled too much in preseason practice. And you either got a bunch of guys injured in preseason practice or you're going to wear them down and you're going to get them injured late in the year because you hit too early and too often too early. Tackling is something that is only sharpened by doing it at full speed at maximum effort. You don't get better at tackling by doing the standing thuds. You don't get better at tackling by hitting sleds, although those drills can help 
you, you see a lot of that in, in individual drills and position drills to kind of sharpen individual aspects of the of the tackling technique. So that's good. But when it comes to bringing somebody down in a live environment, the only way to get better at that is to do it at full speed. And if you do it at full speed too often in preseason camp, it is way too much of an injury risk to make the risk reward balance between having your tackling at 100% in week one. And again, Bama has to play LSU and Texas A&M. Next, they have to play LSU and Auburn, excuse me, I already had Texas A&M on the line, late in the year, plus a potential SEC championship game and potential college football playoff games. So I think it's probably more important that Bama's tackling is at 100% then than it is to be at 100% now. First of all, the, the the offensive line. Both your points are valid, and it, all it takes is is a little, you know, recalling to what happened last year. Uh, because first of all, the offensive line, we saw them tinkering at the beginning of last year because Deontay Brown was suspended, and they were trying some different things out early, and the group just didn't look comfortable. And I remember going into that season, I was extremely high on the offensive line. And I said that I thought that it might have a chance of being the best offensive line under Nick Saban. And early on, it didn't look that way. And I was still wrong on that prediction because I don't think it was the best offensive line ever under Nick Saban. But by the end of the year, it was really, really close. And you almost instantly saw improvement when Deontay Brown got inserted back into the lineup mostly because it started allowing you to get your best five offensive linemen on your roster on the field. What we saw from Alabama was tinkering with the offensive line. You had Evan Neal going from right tackle to left tackle. He played left guard last year, and I understand he has spent his entire career at tackle prior to going to guard last year, and you would think, okay, it's like riding a bike. You, you, know, you kind of pick up on it quick. Well, you know, you've been spending an entire year playing in a phone booth, on the highest level, learning to take on SEC defensive linemen in a certain way, you get flipped not only from playing left guard in a phone booth to the right side, so everything else is you know your dominant uh, hand, your dominant feet, uh, foot, all those things are, are the the polar opposite. Plus, you're now out in space. There's going to be a little a little bit of an adjustment period for a guy like Evan Neal, but on top of that, as he starts to get comfortable over the course of his first game at right tackle in college. He gets kicked over to the left side, and now he's got to protect the quarterback's blind side. It's all, you know, the, to, to, to think that they're just going to go out there and look dominant. You know, I understand that we've built up this offensive line to say we think they're, you know, seven, eight, maybe even nine guys deep that, you know, you could get quality offensive line play. But that doesn't necessarily mean all five guys can just get plugged in certain places and they're going to be just as dominant. If you have to insert somebody into the starting lineup, it's going to take some time for not only that particular starter, but the guy to their left and right, depending on the position, to yeah. adjust as well and to start to work as a collective unit. That's where you get your dominant offensive line play. I'm not worried whatsoever about the offensive line. I actually saw you know, Alex Leatherwood was Alex Leatherwood. Landon Dickerson played fantastic. The other three guys, whether it be a Deontay Brown, Emil Ikior, Ikior was probably the weak link of the offensive line, I have to admit. But Evan Neal didn't look, you know, perfect whatsoever. The other three guys, you saw the flashes, but you saw some. And for, for Deontay Brown, he was probably the biggest surprise because he's seen action at that spot. He's, you know, a, a veteran guy. He's been, and I understand Emil Ikior has been too, but beside the point. Overall, I was totally fine with the way the offensive line looked. And even when they started messing with some stuff, bringing some other guys in, to me, it was not bothersome whatsoever. They're trying to find the right combination of guys, and they did the exact same thing last year for the first few games. And the offensive, uh, the, the, the ability to consistently move guys in the run game, pass protection, all of it was a little bit spotty as a result. So that was not a concern. As far as your point on the tackling, Alabama, a lot of people felt like Alabama was putting their players through the ringer too much over the course of the last couple of training camps or fall camps, and you saw key guys get hurt. And some of it was non-contact stuff. Some of it was, you know, uh, things that you you literally could not have avoided. But with the new strength and conditioning coaches that they've brought in, they're trying to go to a different way of approaching fall camp, keep everybody healthy. But it, as a result of that, you're not going to be as sharp, like you said. That's an excellent point. So for anybody that's concerned about those things, now what I don't want to do 
is if, if we're four or five games in and the offensive line is struggling and the tackling is struggling, I don't want to consistently, you know, blow, you know, rainbows and sunshine up people's, you know, tails all season. That That's not the goal here. But my point would be you need to give it more than one week. And when you look at Alabama's performance, there were some concerns. There were some things that needed to be fixed. I actually think that's a good thing because if they go out there and they look fantastic against a team like Missouri, that, you know, I, I just think that Nick Saban does his best work when he can point to certain things and say we got a lot of you know room to improve, but they're also still handling their business and they're winning by you know close to three touchdowns. I think that's pretty good too. Um, and then also, you know, you look around to other teams, whether it be an LSU who lost, whether it be Texas A&M who struggled against Vandy, we'll get to that. Whether it be Georgia who struggled in the first half against Arkansas, um, yeah. Oklahoma gets beat by Kansas State, Texas almost gets beat by Texas Tech. A lot of these teams, it's early in the season. There's a lot of rust, and, and you're trying to break in new guys, do different things. You've na- tried to navigate a very odd off season. All of it made sense to me, and it's strange that nobody else, you know, well not I wouldn't say nobody else. There's plenty of people who get it, but that there was such a large percentage of people who thought you were going to get perfection right out of the gate. It was just weird. Well, it's it's hard for this is hard for for a lot of people because we spend, especially in, in football, it's this way in in a lot of sports, but but especially in football because. Our offseason is so long and our regular season is so short. We spend so much time building up to the beginning of the season. We spend so much time building up to that moment that we have built it up in our minds, right? We've built it up for so long that they're going to come back and they're going to look great. They're going to win a big game and it's going to be awesome. And that buildup lasted even longer this year with no spring football and no 8A game and the season starting two or three weeks later than it, than it should have. But football teams don't build themselves up to the start of the season. Football teams build themselves up to the end of the season because that's when the championships are won. That's when the big games happen. So it's it, fans and, and others, if, we're, if you want to build up to the season opener, by God, you should. Because if nothing else, I'm, I'm kind of forced to – put out preseason content every single day. So if you're wanting to build yourself up to the season and take in all of that content and subscribe to get more of it, God bless you. That is great. If you're going to analyze the team and and critique it, building up to the beginning of the season is not the main objective here. We're building up to the end of the season. We're, We're trying to manifest improvement in the team each given week to get it to where the the players and coaches want it to be. You don't want that to happen at the beginning of the season because it's really, really hard to maintain. And as we mentioned with the possible injury risk of, of tackling enough early in the se- in, in preseason to get it where it needs to be for week one, it's borderline dangerous or counterproductive. To, to build yourself up for the first game of the season too much. So in in analyzing the team, you kind of got to take that into account that the team is not going to be the best version of itself in week one. One, because it's counterproductive and possibly physically dangerous to, to, to do so. But two, it's almost impossible to hold the best version of yourself for, for that long of a period of time. I mean, regular people can't hold a diet for more than a couple of weeks. But for some reason, we expect college football programs to hold the best version of themselves every day for four to five months. Great point. Yeah. And what? And here's the thing, you know, back when I, I played uh, football myself, one of the big things, even though Nick Saban, he's tinkering in these games. You know, when they have a commanding lead and they're in a good position to win the the football game, he's tinkering. But at the same time, that does not mean that he's putting out these second string guys or moving guys around and expecting them not to to get the job done. Like back when I played in practice, I was a, a freshman or a sophomore in high school. 
And there was a guy by the name of Alfred McCullen, anybody that's an Alabama fan. Uh, he ended up playing at Alabama, was a four-star defensive lineman. But I was, you know, he was a senior the year we won state when uh, when I was a sophomore. And I was on the, the, the practice squad or whatever, you, the practice team, having to go against him playing, you know, offensive line, which is a position I ended up not even playing, but I did early in my career. I'm, you know, 190, 195 pounds, 200 pounds, something like that, trying to block a 315-pound top-notch you know defensive uh, defensive line prospect for division one football and every time that i was put out there i still got screamed at when i didn't do my job and i didn't get the job done and sometimes you look and you'd be like you're kind of putting me in a position where i'm not going to have a whole lot of chance for success here but that's not the point you've got to when they put you out there even though they you know probably in the back of their heads know you know yeah we don't actually expect clint to be able to block alfred on a you know play in play out basis that doesn't mean that they don't kind of expect you to go out there and at least to some degree, get the job done. And if you're not getting the job done, they're going to say something to you. So seeing Nick Saban get frustrated with the players, uh, the second team guys who were not getting the job done, that doesn't mean that he was putting them in the best position to be successful because he was messing with some things. And that ultimately has helped Alabama in the past. They've always spent the first couple games, whether it be offensively, defensively, figuring out what works and what doesn't work what they can do, you know, if uh, if if Alex Leatherwood goes down with some sort of injury, they've now kind of got an idea in live game action of what Evan Neal is going to look like at left tackle. So is that what you do? And then you insert somebody because maybe you like your right tackle, your backup right tackle a little bit more than your backup left tackle. Maybe we'll put Evan there and then insert somebody in. You know, like so they're figuring that stuff out now, but that's going to make you at times look a little bit rough, and that's completely okay. But overall. If if I was you know in, in a fans in a, in fans shoes, I would be completely fine with the way that this game worked out because there was times where they were downright dominant, and you can see the there's a big reason that we've all been extremely high on Alabama, and I even think in compared to an, an Ohio State or a Clemson, Alabama you know when when all three teams were expected to be playing and then the, before COVID hit. I didn't necessarily feel like Alabama was getting enough respect based off of what they were returning. I thought people were taking Tua Tungvaloa's absence or his departure, you know, too much into account based off of what Mac Jones had shown. And we're in a position where we're going to get to see a really good Alabama team play football this year. Now, that's not to say that everything Bama did in this game was was perfect. And I know you're not saying that, and I'm not either. We're just kind of picking on the two main criticisms of of the team out of out of the Missouri game and, and uh, kind of fighting against those. Like, I, for, for example, I thought the the passing game could have been a little more explosive. Um, 23 for 32, which was was great, 303 yards, which was, was awesome. I, I think it could have been a little more explosive, and that very well could be something that happens uh, later in the season. Um, that, that could be something that, that comes as the playbook starts to open up a little bit. Um, I thought the defensive line could have had a little better push at certain instances. It wasn't a, a game-long thing. I mean, Missouri averaged two yards per carry. They they ran for 69 yards nice on 34 carries. <laughs> they did a, did a pretty good job there. Um, I did feel I, like, I, though, I think you're right, though. I did feel like Larry Roundtree, uh, you know, a lot of times he, he had he was running his tail off and, and you could tell. So, yeah, I completely agree that while the numbers don't reflect it, Missouri had some success running the football with their running backs. Yeah. And there, there were other opportunities that, that that Alabama could have capitalized on and, and didn't. But there's also nine more regular season games to to improve upon them, and, and, and frankly, the, the SEC West doesn't seem to have that, like, look-at-me challenger this year, like LSU was last year, and Auburn has been a few times in the recent past, so I think most people are pretty comfortable projecting Alabama to the SEC championship game this year, so really 10 opportunities to, to improve on that, if not more after that, so I, I don't know, that's what that's just where that's where I'm at. So, uh, you know, I guess we can now move on from the frustrations because, yeah, uh, the whole Twitter thing, hopping on there, uh, especially – and granted, you know, I don't want to spend too much time. I thought Bryce Young looked fine. Um, you can see where why he was the number one player in the country. Uh, there were a couple of plays that he made where you go, I just don't think there's a whole lot of guys in college football, period. 
that can make those plays. But there's also some plays where you say, yeah, that looks just like a true freshman who was playing high school football last year, um, you know, who, who didn't have a normal offseason, is still trying to adjust to the college game. So it's just it's totally fine. Uh, I think what happened there is that people built him up way too much over the course of the offseason. And those same people, it was interesting, a lot of them, the same ones that were hyping him up, way too much were the same ones that jumped ship so quickly because he wasn't this, you know, just flawless prospect uh, when he got into the game. And I just, I don't understand that either, but that's beside the point. Let's talk a little bit very quickly because I don't want to spend too much more time on the Missouri game, but just about a couple of uh, key guys uh, that, you know, kind of stood out in our minds. Do you have anybody that when you were watching this game, you thought, wow, he looks fantastic. Waddle, obviously. Um, Yeah. He's, the, the role he's going to play in the offense is what interests me most because it, for we knew he was going to have a bigger role in, in the offense this year. I mean, for him to have eight catches for 134 yards and two touchdowns is, is a big game, but it's not uh, just un- unfathomable given what we anticipate of, of his role this season. Now, something I, I am monitoring 16 of the 23 receptions were by the Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith, and the target numbers were were pretty similar in, in that regard. So I, I'm, I'm I'm monitoring that. I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on that, and we're going to see if if Alabama becomes a, a I guess a two trick pony um, in its in its passing game in the future. That's something I'm I'm going to be monitoring. Um, but the way Waddle was used was particularly interesting because you saw them use him last year in motion and and, in a bunch of different ways to try to create openings for him when he was on the field last year. And those things didn't really go away, which I I guess they shouldn't because they, they work, but Sarkeesian had also kind of mentioned being excited to have his role in the offense come more organically. And they're still doing a lot of those things to, to create openings for, for Jalen Waddle, which just tells you how highly they think of him and, and that him having eight catches in a game, or in this case, eight touches, since he didn't get to uh, return a kick or, or a punt, I, I imagine that's going to be a pretty consistent thing for him. And if people actually start kicking to him later in the year, you, you could see him get 10 or more touches in a game because of how they seem to be dedicated to using him offensively. Absolutely. And to, to uh, some of the other guys' credit, uh, John Mechie, you know, two catches of 20 plus yards. You know, he had only the two catches, but one went for 22 and the other went for 20. And so you saw his ability to provide some relief as a number three receiver. I'll be curious to see that uh, how that kind of shakes out and if he, he starts becoming more involved. From the looks of it right now, it doesn't. It, it seems like he'll be a kind of a distant third, which is still fine. There's still going to be a role for him. It just might not be to the same degree. You know, they they made it work for four guys last year. Uh, so kind of cutting it down by two, I think there's going to be opportunities for Mechie because I, I just think that would be you know force feeding two guys too much. And then Forrestal with his one catch for 34 yards, uh, he provided a big play. Um, you know, and he was lined up as an inline tight end. He wasn't split out wide or anything. And uh, they were able to get him for a big play as well. Um, for me, the big guy who stood out, and it's the one that everybody was talking about preseason. It was the one that everybody was talking about, you know, throughout the game. And he's only continued to kind of already add to the hype that he had despite being a true freshman. And that's Will Anderson. I was extremely surprised with how they used him as an every down edge player. When he got announced as the starter on the depth chart, I thought that's fantastic. When they get they goes those kind of packages where it's going to be LeBron Ray out there as kind of a, an edge defender, and you only got the four down linemen. Uh, I was thinking that it was probably going to be Christopher Owens, uh, excuse me, not Christopher Owens, Christopher Allen. And you know, from the from the jump, it was Will Anderson being that guy. He had assumed an every down role. Not only was he a, a pretty impactful player getting after the quarterback a couple of times, you see some of the explosiveness off the edge. I think his, some of his biggest plays were against the run, whether it be playing assignment football on speed options, whether it be, you know, coming. There was a couple of Jadavian Clowney esque type of impact plays where he fires off the ball and he's blowing stuff up. It's not just a matter of making the play, he's blowing it up before it can even get started. 
And, you know, a lot of people have brought this up. I completely agree. He did not look like a true freshman physically either. I don't know where they're getting 235 pounds from, but, you know, I'll tell you, as somebody that's that's sitting there in that similar range, we're two very different 235 pounds. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> great for him. Um, but it just – I think he's a little bit bigger than that. He looks like he's 245 you know, I don't know. I could be wrong. We'll kind of, I guess it doesn't really matter. But I thought he held up well. Again, you know, uh, the, at the point of attack, I thought he was impactful in a, in a wide variety of ways. And I'm excited to see because we've now seen LeBron Ray is going to make an impact as far as being an interior pass rusher. Christian Barmore is going to make an impact whether he did or didn't in this particular game. He's going to be a guy who, over the course of this season, is going to be an impactful pass rusher in in certain situations. But the big concern was, is can they have a guy who can, can consistently create pressure off the edge? And I absolutely believe they have a guy. Is he going to be perfect? No. I almost can guarantee you he's not going to be perfect. He's going to have a couple of hiccups at certain points, and hopefully those aren't overly costly. But he is certainly a guy who I think, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I think he's going to be better than Anthony Jennings or Trell Lewis during his first season. I think that would be a little bit of a stretch, but I just don't think as far as that number one edge player, there's as much of a drop-off as we originally thought there was going to be when you lose two veteran guys like they did from last year. The the run defense aspect of, of what you said is what stood out to me most because I, I think we we both mentioned this in the preseason, preseason that we anticipated the, the freshman, Will Anderson Jr. and Drew Sanders, to be kind of – pass rush specialist guys, guys that get on the field in very specific situations that are tailored to their athletic gifts at the moment and, and kind of let them grow into bigger roles in the defense as they're able to execute the entire defense at a higher and higher level later in their careers. Uh, so much for that. Will Anderson played every defensive snap of the first quarter. I think he played – most defensive snaps of the second quarter. Like he he was the one dude on the defense that was indispensable. I think his snap count, I haven't done the entire snap count yet, but I think his snap count is going to be pretty comparable to LeBron Ray. And that, I mean, the difficulty of doing that at a position, you know, most guys who become outside linebackers and he was listed, you know, Will Anderson coming out of high school, he was listed as a weak side defensive end because he was a kid in high school who put his hand in the dirt and got after the quarterback and, and was pretty much a defensive lineman. Well, when you're, you're out there and you're playing in Alabama's three, four defense, you're going to see plenty of that, but you're also going to be asked to drop in coverage and do a lot of different things. It's not an easy defense to learn. So for him to have the ability to come in and, and that kind of be a flawless transition or at least for the most part from everything that we've seen it's been a flawless transition is nothing short of incredible because you know there are a lot of different positions on defense that that would be difficult to play in Nick Saban's defense but edge is is certainly one of those because what like you said what most people do and this what we predicted is they say hey okay what does this kid do extremely well coming out of high school what are what are some things that how can we make him an immediate uh producer for us let's put him in a position to succeed and, you know, they look really good, but they're doing it in some sort of specific role. And for a guy like Will Anderson, he was handed the, the full workload in week one. And I understand Missouri's nothing to write home about. He's going to face better defensive – or, excuse me, offensive linemen. He's going to face better uh, uh, running backs. But for what he did in week one, I, I was completely shocked by how he played. Shall we move on to Texas A&M now? I think it's about that time. And, and you know, very quickly, just I'll, I'll go ahead and let you, because I'm sure people are like, wait a minute, you talked a little bit about Bryce Young. You mentioned a couple guys. How do you not mention Mac Jones and how fantastic he looked? He looked pretty flawless. Do you have any quick thoughts for the for the people on Mac Jones? Um, Is no an acceptable answer? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, he, he did more or less what I anticipated him to do. He he operated the offense at a high level. I, I think Nick Saban said on Monday that he only made one bad read. All of his other reads were the way they were supposed to be. When he did test Missouri's defense downfield, he did so accurately for the most part. That that one ball to, to waddle in between two defenders stands out. There were, there were a couple where I think there was that one out route into the end zone early in the game where Devontae – 
didn't really have a chance to get the foot back down because of, of where the ball was. Maybe that ball could have been placed better, but you'd have to have the the behind-the-line angle to see what Mack was seeing and where the where the defensive backs were, were placed at the time. Maybe that was the only place the ball could have uh, safely been put. I don't know, but uh, I thought he operated the offense the way it's supposed to be operated, and, and that's more or less what you're – what you're asking of him. So I, I don't Absolutely. know. That I, I have much else to, to offer. I completely agree. And then, you know, very quickly, it, night and day difference, having a guy like Dylan Moses back out there. Uh, you yes. saw Christian Harris be a lot more confident in the way that he played. Um, he's, he's a beast too. You know, when he is playing confident, the two combined for like 14 tackles, four and a half tackles for loss and, and a, a sack and a half. They're going to be a dynamic duo, so definitely wanted to give them a shout-out. But we'll go ahead and move on to Texas A&M. Well, Do you want actually, to take a quick one break? More. Dylan, okay. Dylan Moses is an absolute terror in pass rush. Oh, my God. It, his explosiveness is incredible, and I think he could be a top-notch edge player. Granted, he a little bit still undersized. You know, The body type doesn't necessarily lend itself. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of the same way with – or it was the same way with, with uh, Rashawn Evans – Right. Back when he played, you think this guy could be an every down outside linebacker, and yet you could just get to use him there situationally because he's so effective as an off ball linebacker. It's, it's, it, man, was it not fantastic seeing him back out there? Yes, he, he, he was as advertised, truly, in, in pretty much every way imaginable. That was, that was fun. Uh, let, let's move on to, to Texas A&M and that odd, struggle bus of, of a game they had with uh with with Vanderbilt but before we do we need to let you know that Wickles Pickles uh it's a family recipe 90 years in the making right here in the state of Alabama they offer pickles relishes relishes okras and much more I have a jar of the sandwich spread in in my in my fridge actually I can I can attest to its deliciousness go to wicklespickles.com to learn more about their products Wickles Pickles Let's get wicked. The, the other thing I know about Wickles is they would cover against Bandy, and A&M did not. <laughs> uh, it, that was one of the – and there was many of them on Saturday. We were watching it, and they're there. You know, if you're watching a different game, they kind of throw up what's happening, and you're like, man, just didn't really see that coming. And, you know, Georgia and Arkansas, and we've already kind of covered a lot of those games. But the vanderbilt Texas A&M one, especially for, for somebody like me – who, you know, once Jamon Osmond decided to opt out, uh, I didn't think he was such an important player that, I, oh, man, I think that, that he automatically means they're probably going to lose a, an extra two or three games. But I did start to say, okay, I could see Auburn kind of sliding in there and potentially competing for that number two spot in the West. Definitely didn't have LSU anywhere close. Um, and for anybody who did, I don't know why. But uh, for, for A&M, Watching them, that did not make me feel very confident in any preseason predictions that I had for them because they kind of looked out of out of sort, not a whack, a little bit. They, they did the the five fumbles, three of them lost, recovered by by Vandy was 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 an issue. I, I think the thing about Javon Osmond's opt out that really hurts Texas A and M is they don't really have an explosive threat on on their offense anymore. They don't have the guy who can produce 30 and 40 yard gains with, with any consistency. And, and frankly, that's something Jimbo has lacked in his entire tenure at, at Texas A&M. And if the Aggies are going to take the next step, they need to have that guy. They, they don't run, uh, they don't run the RPO spread style scheme that, that kind of generates those things based on scheme more than talent. They, they need, uber talented guys that can create those things um in more traditional ways um I, i'm trying to dance around jimbo's offensive stylings here um they, <laughs> they need that guy they don't have that guy anymore and it, it's going to cost them uh as long as they don't have that guy now he's been recruiting at a high level maybe they find that guy later this year or at the start of next year but they don't have that guy right now, so I don't know how you can expect to keep up with with Alabama's offensive potential at the moment if you don't have at least one, if not multiple, super explosive offensive playmakers. They don't have one 
at wide receiver right now. There there could be some some running backs that that blossom into that. Isaiah Spiller had a huge freshman year last year. He he had 117 yards on eight carries against Vanderbilt. That's a lot. Uh, he he can probably provide you that explosive ability a, a few times in the in the run game. Maybe I I don't know how you pronounce it. A Anias 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 Smith. Um, he might be able to provide that as a spell running back, but those are going to be few and far between. For the for the most part, Texas A and M doesn't really offer an explosive offensive threat right now, and, and that just makes it all, all the more easier for for this improving Alabama defense. And see, that that's the part to me because it wasn't just Jamon Osmond. You know, if they just lose him from last year, as far as their you know receiving group. I would have thought they were going to be okay, but they had Courtney Davis decide to leave early. They had Kendrick Rogers decide to leave early. And so you lose your top three pure receivers from last year. Um, and they just, you know, they've recruited pretty well. You know, Demond Demas was a, a five-star uh, wide receiver who I think is going to end up being a pretty good player. He's not there yet. I think he's listed at, you know, second on the depth chart at one of those wide receiver spots. And we'll just kind of, he didn't have a catch in this last game, but not on top of that, you were supposed to have the most dynamic one, two punch at tight end in the entire country and Jalen Watermeyer and Baylor cup. And once again, you know, due to, I think it was a shoulder injury. Baylor cup is now out for the year before you even get things started. Uh, so it goes back to being the, the Jalen Watermeyer show. And he had a fantastic season last year. He only had two catches for 19 in this game against Vandy, but I think you're right. Um, you know, Anaya Smith, I'll tell you right now, whether it be as a runner, whether it be as a, you know, you can line it, he's played some receiver, not an overly big guy, but when you look at some of the success as far as popping Alabama for, you know, a big play from, from uh, Beatty last week, I could see Anaya Smith having a couple of, of explosive plays in this one, and they'll probably try to get the ball in his hands because they don't have a, a ton of options. Uh, Isaiah Spiller, um, you know, can be used as a patch catching running back, he's fine in that area. He's going to be kind of your banger as far as, you know, handing him the football. The offensive line is in a pretty good spot. I think they returned four out of five uh, starters from last year, including Kenyon Green and Carson Green. The two greens, one plays right tackle and the other plays left guard. And Kenyon Green, the left guard, was a former five-star himself, and, and he's going to be, you know, he already is a player. Uh, but just, you know, Kellen Mond, a guy who we have continuously talked about, he's played so much football but he has not taken that next step like everybody kind of expected. Uh, and, you know, I understand that, um, you know, they were, they're limited as far as the weapons they have around him right now. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have less than 200 yards passing against Vanderbilt. He did have over 200 total because he had something, you know, like I want to say it was like 20-something yards rushing to add on top of that. But it, it just it wasn't a huge output for him. And he put three balls on the ground, and he lost two of them. And and that can't happen because Alabama's defense is, is pretty good at creating turnovers. And they got some guys who can get to the quarterback, and they're going to make his life difficult. Now, to his credit, Kellen Mond the last two years has played pretty well against Alabama. Uh, so, you know, maybe they'll be able to get something done on that front. But with the improvement, what regardless of what some fans have said, you know, some fans are still down on, on Pete Golding f- because of week one. I think that defense is oozing with talent for Alabama. They can attack you in a variety of ways. They played super aggressive. I loved how aggressive they played. Uh, you know, as far as getting after and creating packages, pressure pa- pressure packages, and things like that. And you're only going to continue to see that more and more. If that's what they're showing right now against Missouri, when you have, you know, you're expected to kind of have control of the game then you're certainly going to be creating and doing a lot more against the Texas A&Ms of the world. So I'll be excited to watch that this weekend. And another, go ahead. Good. They had 10 tackles for a loss against Vandy and only two of them were sacks. So eight tackles for a loss against the run. So when you adjust Vandy's uh, rushing attempts for, uh, when you adjust it for sacks, Texas A&M stopped, over 20% of Vandy's runs for a loss. How much of that was Vandy and how much of that was was A&M? Does, does Alabama have a hyper-disruptive defense coming into town this weekend? Yes, uh, 100%. From okay. a, a defensive line's perspective, I think that you know Texas A&M might end up having one of the best defensive lines in the conference. Uh, you know, McKinley Jackson was a former 
Uh, you know, a lot of people feel like he was an Alabama lean. He's a true freshman, four-star guy. I think he was a top 100 prospect just inside the top 100. But uh, he's playing and getting snaps as a a, a a true freshman. I think he had a couple of tackles and a, a tackle for loss. You have a guy like uh, uh, DeMarvin Leal, who was a guy who could play inside and out, very, uh, you know, 6'4", 290 pounds, very versatile, former five-star guy. Um, of course, you do have uh, – what's his name? Um, Bobby Brown is another guy as far as being an interior presence. And then a, a guy that a lot of people have, have kind of hyped up for the last couple of years, and we just haven't seen it, was Michael Clemens. And, and we saw it finally against Vanderbilt. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to put just a ridiculous amount uh, of stock into that one game against Vanderbilt's you know, offensive line. But you know, Michael Clemens had one and a half sacks former very talented player for across the board defensive line solid you're talking about buddy johnson he led the team in tackles he's always been known as a tackling machine he's not going to create a bunch of big plays with interceptions and sacks he's just a steady guy who's going to be able to rack up double digit tackles each and every week and then on the back half of your defense with uh damani richardson he created a turnover i think it was an interception uh you know they have some players in the back half so you know at all three levels of their defense they're looking pretty good, but their their bread and butter is going to come from that defensive line. And I was extremely impressed with what they did against Vanderbilt. The question is, is how are they going to be able to stack up and hold up against Alabama's offensive line, who I think is going to have a big performance in this game. So this this could be a uh, a pretty significant test for for this Alabama offensive line that um, we we've both said is, is likely to be the best in the country. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm right there. I think that if Alabama has the dominant performance that I think they can, uh, you know, and don't get me wrong. I mean, Missouri's defensive line gave Alabama's offensive line at times, you know, tr- some trouble. But I think that they're going to not try to tinker as much this week. They're going to try to do the things that they do extremely well. I think that helps Alabama. And we'll just kind of see there's a little bit of depth on that defensive line, too. It's not just those starters. So there's I mean. That'll be one of the more intriguing things to keep up with as far as this matchup. But one area that Texas A&M's got to improve in, if they want a chance in this game, in against Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt held the ball for you know 33 minutes and 20 seconds compared to uh, Texas A&M, 26 minutes and 40 seconds as far as the time of possession. That kind of discrepancy can't happen against Alabama because of what they're going to be able to do offensively if you allow them to have all that extra time. They're going to put tons of points on the board, and they have a defense where you need to try to hang on to the ball as long as possible uh, and not just do a bunch of creative, you know, explosive plays. If you can do that, great. But it's just it's very tough to hit Alabama for explosive plays. So if you're relying on not holding on to the football a lot, and and you know if you're expecting Isaiah Spiller to average you know, what is it, 14.6 yards per carry, that's yeah. not going to happen against Alabama. You're not going to have those kind of explosive plays. So, you know, they got to do a better job of, of creating sustainable drives and then being, you know, they were fine on third downs, 4-10. Uh, that's not terrible, but it's also, you know, against Vanderbilt, you'd expect it to be a lot higher. So there's some areas that Texas A&M has just disappointed so far, and that reflected in the score with almost getting beat by Vanderbilt. You know, I did a uh, I did a Texas A&M uh, podcast slash Facebook live type deal earlier this week. And and I was curious. So I, it was a group of people who cover A&M. So I, I asked them like, what would, what would success be deemed as? Because you're, you're at a point in Jimbo Fisher's tenure at A&M where they want to start seeing tangible results of, of this investment they're putting into, into, into Jimbo. And I was just curious what exactly, success would be deemed as because I, I don't think they're they're at a point in their program where anyone reasonably expects them to beat Alabama um so what exactly would success be is it a 14 point loss is it a 10 point loss what what is it and, and the answer they kind of settled on was it's less about the point differential and more about competence offensively or at least just offensive ability. Like if, if they were able to have no turnovers, move the ball, gain, gain a good bit of yards on both on both on the ground and through the air, if they did that and still lost by 21, I, they think that A&M fans would generally be okay with that because it is the progress offensively that they need to justify continuing to invest and believe in this Jimbo Fisher project. And I looked up this stat for 
our three things to know, which is going to be in the Saturday game day wraparound for those of you that are print subscribers in Tuscaloosa News. Otherwise, it'll be uh, posted Saturday morning. I, I looked up because uh, we get lucky in that Fisher's last year at Florida State, they played Bama. So Jimbo Fisher has coached against Bama in each of the last three seasons. So what I did was I looked up Jimbo Fisher's team's yard, yards per play against Bama in, in those seasons. So the 17 game, uh, the 2017 game with Florida State and the 18 and 19 games with Texas A&M. Then I looked up the yards per play of those teams against every other team they played. Against Alabama, Jimbo Fisher's offense averaged 5.1 yards per play. In all other games, it averaged six yards per play. So coaching against Alabama has more or less cost Jimbo Fisher a yard per play. Now, if you extrapolate that over the 60 to 75 plays that they're going to run in a game, give or take, maybe that 60 to 75 yards of offense is worth a score, and maybe it gets them over some arbitrary yard marker, like maybe it gets them over 300 or something, and maybe that's the optimism that Texas A&M needs to, to feel good about Jimbo Fisher and, and, and the direction that they're heading in, in year three of the grand experiment. Um, that was just something that I came into this week. Yeah, that, that's actually super interesting. And from a, an offensive approach, I mean, they were balanced, whether it be from a yardage output or whether it be from a, an attempt. Uh, looking at it, they attempted 28 passes and they rushed the ball 27 times. So they're balanced there. And from a yardage output, they threw for 189 and they ran for 183. So a ton of balance there offensively. But that output, you know, against Vanderbilt and, you know, it, it would be more so understandable if, if, you had that kind of output, but you were able to score efficiently, get a lead, and then you kind of, you know, back off a little bit. But the fact that it was a close game and you're putting up that kind of, you know, the, the 183 rushing yards isn't bad at all, but it was the the passing yardage and the kind of output that you're going to need to have in order to beat an, an Alabama offense that I think, you know, the Texas A&M could give them some difficulty. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I guarantee you Alabama's going to move the ball at will. But it's just very hard to contain Alabama's offense. And when you look at the way that the, the Texas A&M defensive backs stack up against Alabama's receivers, they have some talent uh, at the cornerback position. Miles Jones is, you know, a six four, hundred eighty five pound corner. The, the other guy, um, Trayvon Fuller, he's a guy six one, one eighty. Devin Moore, six one, two oh two. Uh, the the five star freshman Jalen Jones six two two oh five they have a lot of they're, they're big physical corners and that's great when you're going against big physical receivers but Alabama that's not how their guys win they run good routes they create separations that they're out running and that that even includes a guy like John Mechie who's kind of a newbie uh, really there's not a whole lot of just the this kind of of defensive secondary would do much better. Um, you know, go trying to stack up against the Seth Williams for Auburn than it would be, you know, a Devontae Smith or a Jalen Waddle for Alabama. You see what I'm saying? So I just don't think there's a whole lot of uh, room here for Texas A&M to, to be able to keep this game close, which is why I ultimately think, I think the line right now is like 17 or 17 and a half. I understand that Alabama didn't get the job done as far as covering those point spreads. And we were both super confident, you know, I, I, and I think that if they played 10 times, I think Alabama covers, you know, eight of them. Uh, I, I really do. It's just the way this, this ended up working out and it looked a lot worse because they got a last second touchdown on the very last play of the game and, and made it, you know, a lot more respectable. It's kind of, if, if they don't put up that touchdown, they score in that 10 to 14 point range. Like I thought they would in Alabama. I thought they'd be in that 40 to, to 45 and being at 38 is not quite getting there. But, you know, it, it, it kind of would have played out the way I thought that it would, except for it was just one of those few scenarios where they don't end up covering that that spread. But for this one and the way the Texas A&M looked, I mean, it, I'll go ahead and tell you right now, we're doing the, that pick pod um, tomorrow, and, and you've been inserting – or not inserting, but submitting your picks. Uh, I'm taking Alabama, and I'm giving up the, the 17 or 17 and a half points. As long as it's not up there in that, you know, 19, 19 and a half. And even then, it's like, uh, I, who knows? Um, but I, I just think that Alabama is going to be able to control this game and, and win by a pretty significant margin. My, my last note of the podcast is Texas A&M has a defender named Ernest Crownover, which always reminds us to shout out the Royal <laughs> Protector of the Trust Crown. 
hey, it's great to see him back out there. Uh, and, and man, the closing speed, his, his Majesty out there, sir. Excuse your His Majesty. You are absolutely correct. I do apologize. Um, to his Majesty and the Royal Protector of the Trust Crown. So what does that make Christian Harris? Oh, that's a good question. I'm I'm open to suggestions for I too. You know, the I think title the title of, of Christian Harris alongside His Majesty underneath the the fanhood and, and potential direction of the Royal Protector of the Trust Crown. So if you have <laughs> I can't believe we're gonna do this. If you have <laughs> suggestions for the title of Christian Harris, tweet them at Clinton I. I am at Brett underscore Hudson. He is at Clint R. Lamb. Tweet your suggestions for Christian Harris's name at us to go alongside the Royal Protector of the Trust Crown and His Majesty. We're, hey, we're going to get something going here. We're going to get a nice <laughs> little, you know, who knows? I might didn't, you know, the, I like the Bash Brothers. I've always been a huge Mighty Ducks fan, so anytime I can use that and it kind of makes sense, I like, I, but I mean, he's already, uh, Dylan Moses already has a, a nickname. You know, and it's and it's or not really a nickname. It's a title. Excuse me. That is not a nickname. But we got to give uh, Christian Harris a little love, too, and, and create something that we can call them both. So put your creative hats on, people. Uh, anybody that's listening that wants to get involved, like Brett said, tweet one of us or both of us, actually, and give us your suggestions. And don't even think about saying something like Pr- uh, Prince Joffrey or something from Game of Thrones. That is not fitting. It's got to be a fitting nickname Let's I, i'm just gonna tell you if you make a game of thrones reference i'm not gonna catch it so i'm sorry oh well that's disappointing really okay well that's that's a whole conversation for another day sure um, yeah that's uh, i you know what it it didn't end great so it's not that big of a deal all you right know, I, I was i was starting to feel bad about not catching on and then the final season happened and now i'm good yeah i think i think you just saved yourself a lot of pain and hurt uh is what i think you've done all right that's gonna do it for another episode of the bama beat podcast tomorrow i'll be back on with hunter and cecil we'll be doing the pick em pod we'll be getting brett's picks and i'll be reading those off live uh you know hunter loves the fact that you're not on there brett so he can take shots at you and your picks without you being able to defend yourself well he should i went four five and one last week it, I was I finished well yeah I finished one game ahead of you Cecil finished two and you know we can't all be Hunter over here going seven two and one uh, to open the college football season I, I got a feeling it's going to be unbearable tomorrow but you know Is what that if you different from every other day or <laughs> well you know last year he was humbled a little bit me and him both were doing terrible it wasn't just me so he he didn't have a whole lot to brag about but he, you know when you're out doing Cecil and Cecil had a good week six three and one you know rock solid I just uh. You know, I'm going to need a strong bounce back, and me and you both do. You know, I'm only one game ahead of you. It's not like I'm over here killing it. Uh, so we, we at least got one game for me for anybody wanting a preview for tomorrow. Uh, we always save the Alabama game for last, but here I am already telling you who I'm going to pick. But you don't care about my pick anyways. You care about Cecil's, and you might care about Hunter's now. We'll see. But all right, Brett, I appreciate you hopping on here with me, as always. I will talk to you next week. Guys, this is now going to be a Monday-Tuesday thing. Uh, for you know, kind of a, a game recap on Monday and then a game preview on Tuesday. Uh, so be on the lookout for those. We've decided to combine it this week because of time constraints, but going to be switching it up a little bit. We appreciate you hopping on here with us. This has been another ba- episode of the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.